congratulatories to Deacon and Mrs. Winley for 35 years of journey. I was going to get up and say speech, 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 but uh, I'm not sure. did you want to say anything, Mrs. Winley? Are you good? seem to be a pretty nice guy. It's <laughs> good. Wonderful. All right. I want to just for a few minutes lift up a few things out of the fourth chapter of Philippians as it has been read for our hearing earlier. And I want to use as a parallel sample to sort of get at the intention of Paul in the letter to the Philippians. It's a, it's a short letter, but it's once again one of those letters where Paul writes to not only give encouragement to a congregation who had mastered the art of understanding the spirit of generosity. When you read Paul's letter, and particularly if you go back and read the book of Acts, uh, but when you read Philippians as well as Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul makes a great deal of reference to the people in Philippi because of the generous contribution they made to his missionary journeys. The smallest congregation that he had ever established on his missionary work, and yet they gave the most of any congregation that he had established. Smallest but yet gave the most. And although they had this generous spirit that existed among them, he found it necessary after listening to some of the comments made probably by Epaphroditus who would report back to Paul on the regular in terms of what was happening in churches in various regions while Paul is in prison. He is in prison as he writes Galatians, Philippians, and Ephesians, probably along with 1st and 2nd Timothy because of his missionary work and he is awaiting what the sentence will be from Nero. In return, he found it necessary to send this short letter. It's really not four chapters. It's really a single written letter in its originality. But we have it comprised in this various four compartments that we might get a better understanding thematically what Paul was attempting to say. But he raises an issue. And the issue is, I'm certainly happy about the generosity that you have learned to give, but I am disappointed by the differences that exist among you as a congregation. The difference so much so that it has caused a disengagement to the point where rather than finding a necessary inspiration for healing, I've noticed in what I've received from Epaphroditus, you get further and further apart from one another, sending a twofold message. One, to those who are outside the church, we are one way, but for those who are inside the church, we are another way. That's troubling because differences can create disagreements, and disagreements can lead to disengagement, and disengagements can lead to distances between us, and when we have distances between us, we end up living out a disharmony. And that happens primarily when we talk about a community, a gathering of people where we come together for the soul's sake by way of definition of a church. We come together for three primary emphases. One, we come because the church is a place of hope where could we receive some encouragement? We can receive some words of instructions and, and how uh, we can live hopeful 
in a very hopeless world from time to time. It's a place, the church, where we come where we can receive help. It's the one place where we hope we can receive divine instruction from the word so that whatever comment you make or principle you try to elevate, you can support that by biblical revelation, which helps paint the picture for me that it's a God-centered perspective. Finally, we come to church because it's a place where we can find ultimately healing. Healing because being in a hopeless world that often doesn't offer the kind of help that I need, it therefore can't heal me often of the issues that I encounter, but hopefully through God's divine word, the Holy Spirit helps illuminate and then helps surgically bring about the healing that I need in diverse spaces of my existence. But each of those are difficult to experience when there is disharmony. Disharmony among its members because in the disharmony it has been created as a result of the distance that those members have and they are distant because they have, because of some issue, become disengaged with each other. And they are generally disengaged because something has created a disagreement, which generally means there's a difference among the people. Nothing wrong with differences. Actually, differences can lead to agreements, even if it means to disagree to agree. It can lead to agreements. It can also lead to engagement, even though often it causes us to disengage. It can further lead to not just distance, but drawing closer because we will look through a different set of lenses. And this is not just a principle acting out in terms of a community, but it happens in the life of an individual. When you have been coupled with someone for a long period of time, each of these activities can become obvious in your walk with each other. It's not that God helps us to try to see that we are not going to have disagreement. It's going to happen. It's a part of living with another human being who is different. But in this text, Paul amazingly stands Again, not just to celebrate their generosity, but to find out why, though, are you not walking in harmony? Uh, I draw the parallel to the four young ladies who came to stood here and the three young ladies who told us about the missions effort that they were doing. Uh, most of those young ladies, I remember when they were children, small, growing up here at Zion. Now they're growing enough to comprehend when there is difference and when there is disagreements and when there is disengagement among us and distance and disharmony. They now are very cognitive of when that happens. And now we have to wrestle with, although we are generous in helping those outside, but what about those inside? Where is this elevation of the love that we preach and sing about? This is what Paul is concerned about in this text. Follow me in your Bible very closely. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. And I'm going to read various spots in different chapters because you have to watch how Paul evolves his considerations and his criticisms. He says in chapter 1, and particularly as he comes to the close, of verse, in verse 27, he says, remember all of us are citizens of heaven, so conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of heavenly citizenship. So there's a call there for us to remember heaven must always be on our mind. We must always remember that as we think, here's a reminder to the verse quoted, by youth on mission, listen, we are lights of the world, but let your light so shine that men and women can see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Matthew 5. Always remember that there's somebody looking even when you think they're not looking. 
So Paul says, you are citizens of heaven, act like that. And he says, whether I'm with you or not, if I come again or not, that's not the issue. In other words, just because you know somebody's looking at you, don't change your behavior. Here's a fascinating, simplistic point, but yet it's profound. Whenever I notice people going down 95, they're doing like 75, 80, until they see a state trooper. Then everyone wants to slow down to 55. Why? You were already doing 80 if, if, if your idea is do 80. If he catches you, he catches you, but just do 80. Now that sounds absurd, doesn't it? Because the speed limit is 55. But if the speed limit is 55, why are you doing 80? So what Paul is saying is, don't act one way when you know folk looking at you. Be the same way before people as you are with people that are not even looking at you. Here it is right here in the text. He says in verse 27, then whether I come and see you or not or hear about you, I want to know that you are standing side by side fighting together for the faith. That's good news to me. So what we're trying to do is instill in young people the practicality of their faith. That it's not just something that you experience on Sunday morning, but when you leave this confinement of a space, don't act one way here and something different when you get off to college. Because there you'll be confronted with a different world who may or may not have any consideration for religious persuasion at all. But it's going to raise the question, what lives on the inside of me? So here it is. So Paul says, don't be, verse 28, intimidated, chapter 1 of Philippians, anyway by your enemies. This is a sign that they are going to be destroyed, but God is going to save you. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but to suffer with him as well. That just simply means because you stand for something. So that's why I call this sermon the final word about words. Because we do know that words can be descriptive and words can be persuasive and words can be constructive and life-altering if I hear the right words. But that same venue of communication, the linguistics of what words are, the phrasing of words, putting sentences together, can be used in the same manner to deconstruct, to destroy, to be oppressive, and to suggest a limitation on my ability. And Paul says, this is what your language is doing to one another. You are starting to limit each other's potentiality. Taking a stand for truth requires a conviction on the internalism of who you are that I'm going to stand because God stood for me at Calvary. And because of that, I must now stand with him. Remember what Jesus said, if you speak for the Father before them, then the Father will speak for you. But if you reject being audible about God, the Father will be silent when he comes to responding to you. So here's what he says. I know that's tough, verse 30, but we're in this struggle together. Keep this in mind. You're going to get to my point here in a sec. Keep this in mind. We are in this struggle together. Did you hear what I said? We are in this struggle together. Paul makes a point of that because he wants him to understand when you talk about a church community, it is all for one and one for all. We are in this together. Watch what he says now. He says, we are in this struggle together. You've seen how I struggled in the past and you know how I have stood in the midst of it. So as the leader, I stood for certain fights and tests because... I knew that you were observing what I was doing, says Paul, and I knew that you would follow me as an example, but I also knew you needed to know how to stand. 
Because you can tell some people to look at Jesus, they won't do it. But they will look at you because that's the manifestation of what they see. That's why our life is admonished to live in Christ. So that when people see us, they see Christ in us, then it becomes obvious. Now you might ask, how does that get, and what does that have to do with the problem? Well, chapter 2, verse 1, introduces us to Paul's recognition that there's a problem in the house. Listen to what he says. He raises several questions because now he wants to know, if God means that much to you, why do we have a problem? So he says, if there's any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? So in other words, he notices that whatever is wrong, it's creating this disagreement, this distance, this disengagement, this disharmony, so much so that people now are talking on the outside. There's something ain't right with them people in that church. And Paul says, that's not what I want to hear. In fact, look what he says in verse, look what he says here in verse 2. Make me, listen, he says in verse 1, if you get all of this benefit from God, verse 2, then make my heart, make me truly happy, make my heart happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. That's how I knew there was a problem. Agree with each other. Look at the next line. Love each other. Look at the next line. Work together with one mind and one purpose. Because what is at the base of the word community? Common. Commonality. It means they are one. Mind and purpose. But they have running through their veins, not just the phileo love of loving someone else as another human being, but they have the agape love of God because it reaches beyond what phileo can't do. So Paul says, I need you guys to get this thing together. Now I'm going to fast forward because I don't want to eat up all your time because I think you look at me like, I'm still trying to figure out what you're talking about, Pastor. So here's what I'm talking about. The real issue in the church was there was an issue and church folk didn't want to face it. So what they were trying to do was cover it up or, more importantly, not have anything to do with it at all. They would back away and say, well, let's just let those handle it who got the issue. I don't have an issue at all. Remember we said a church is a community. That means at the base they should have commonality. And Paul says the one commonality I want you to have is love for each other. I want you to have not just love for each other, but I want you to have the one-mindedness. And I want you to agree. And I want you to have same purpose. And if that be the case, he says... Look at chapter 2, look at verse 3. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress other people. Be humble. Think of somebody else more than yourself. And don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. There is this inviting into, when you see this difference that leads to dissension, I expect for you, Paul, who says it to everyone in that congregation to get involved. Now Paul's shaking the tree. He's shaking the tree, which creates problems for people who don't want to be involved. Because most people want to only come to church, get what they can get, and out of here. And that works. That works for a lot of people in a lot of different settings. But Paul says somebody got to put on the gloves Got to put on the work hat, the hard hat. Got to put on the boots. Got to put on the work clothes and go together and work together to build. And you can't build without difference. You can't build without some conflict. Somewhere along the line, we're going to have a difference of opinion. And Paul says that's not an excuse for you to check out. 
Here it is. Follow me in the text. Look at what he says. Look at what he says. Verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, follow my instructions when I was with you. You follow my instructions when I was with you. Now that I'm away, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. So now he raises the question, if you come into church, who are you trying to impress? And who are you serving if you're really coming for the sake of coming or for the sake of getting the word? Look at what he says. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. God wants me to serve him. He's made available the power to do it. Am I searching for it? Look at verse 14. Do everything without complaining and argument. Do everything without complaining and argument so that no one can criticize you. He ain't never been to a black church. Paul has never been to a church that was Afrocentric because he knows that's a part of doing church. We have to complain. We have to complain and we have to argue. And listen to what he says. No. He says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God. Why? Because you are shining like lights in a world full of crooked, crooked and perverse people. Ain't no crooked and perverse people in this room, Paul. Who, who are you talking about? Watch this. Hold firmly to the word of life because one day Jesus is returning. And I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain, that my work was not useless. Oh, here's what Paul says. I would hate to see God return only to discover that all of the work that I did among you ended up reaping no benefit at all. Then he says, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring out like a liquid offering, just like your faithful service is an offering to God, and I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share in joy with you. What, what am I trying to get at? Paul says, in church, we too often permit the smallest thing to take the joy of the Lord out of our congregational life. We too often allow the difference between us to rob us of the joy. The theme of the letter is rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. But Paul says there is an issue going on between you that you are allowing to steal your joy. Now, here is what we have to do with this letter. Ask ourselves the question, what issue do we have in the congregational life that's stealing our joy for God's glory? That's where we get to chapter 4. Because now he cuts across the chase of trying to talk in generality. He stays in the peripheral for the longest. He does like we do. You know how we say, well, I heard. Or it's been rumored. I saw on Facebook. Paul says, I'm cutting across all that. And I'm just going to straight up tell you what the problem is. I'm going to point it right into your face. Look at verse 1. First of all, he says, let me tell you something. I am saying what I'm saying in the manner that I'm saying it because you are a pastoral reward to me. Look at the verse. Look at verse 1 clearly. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, my brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I can actually stop right there and then close the sermon. Stay true to God. Stay true to the Lord because the truth is that if there is something here, I might as well go ahead and admit it, face it, and get the victory out of it. I think one of the key episodes in the life of Job is not the... Uh, probably 25 or 30 chapters that Job goes through in dialogue with God and with his three friends, I think the key 
dialogue as well as the key issue is when the Bible says when Job came to present his gifts to the Lord, Satan came along with him. And I think that's critical because for me, Job's response to what Satan is attempting to do will determine just how much endurance he will have in combating the loss that he will receive. I think our willingness to confront evil and tell it just like it is. Don't play with it. Don't try to paint over it. And for God's sake, stop trying to be politically correct with your language when something is wrong. We are trying to do the same thing that the people do in the world in terms of language use as words. So we don't want to say certain things because it might offend you. It might rub you the wrong way. It may not make you feel the best. I just want to know if your child was walking down Zion Drive and just happened to be walking in the middle of the road and a truck was coming down Zion Drive 70 miles an hour. Would you use politically correct language to warn your child you need to get out of the street? First of all, you want to know what in the world are you doing in the middle of the street? There's a designated spot for you to travel. But secondly, trouble is coming and it will very likely eliminate your existence if you're not careful. Why do we do that in church? when we know there's a real issue. Here it is right here in chapter four. Listen to what he says in verse one. He says, I'm saying it this way because you are my pastoral reward. Look what he says. He says, I love you and I wanna see you. You are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. If you succeed, if you grow, if you mature, if you become stable enough to handle the winds of adversity in your life, that's what makes me happy, says Paul. Paul says, then I know that my preaching is not in vain. I know that my teaching is not in vain. I know that my laboring is not in vain. You are my reward. So I'm trying to tell you, as your pastor, I don't want to say things to necessarily purposely hurt you. That would be foolish. You think about some things. Why would I say some things purposely to hurt you foolishly when I know that the whole entire operation of a church is dependent upon a volunteer effort? That's absurd. But I got to help you. And in helping you, I got to warn you when you're walking in the middle of Zion Drive and that truck is coming down Zion Drive. I got to warn you. The other reason why I got to warn you because Ezekiel tells me in his writing that God says, if you as the watchman on the wall see danger coming to the people and you don't tell them at judgment, their blood will be required on your hands. That just means that if I know that you're going in the wrong direction and you're doing the wrong things and you're not following the teaching of the word and I don't tell you, God says, I'm going to hold you accountable, not them. And I'm just here to tell you because I got enough stuff of my own. I mean, I got closets of stuff that I got to hold before God. I'm not adding your baggage with mine. So I'm telling you what I got to tell you. Take it up with the giver of the assignment. I didn't give myself this assignment. But here it is, verse 2. He said, let me get down to the heart of the matter. There's a problem between two of you. There's a problem that exists between two of you, and that is my concern. I, I don't even want to talk about your giving anymore. I'm glad that you're a giver. But this right here could destroy all of your testimony in giving. So he says in verse 2, I appeal. The word appeal there in the Greek means it is in my deepest heart that I plead with you. Paul says, I'm begging you. Syntyche and Yota, please, if you will, look at the text, settle your disagreement. Settle your differences. Seek reconciliation. So in the first one, he said, you are my reward. Now he says, seek reconciliation. It's important. 
Now, how do I know that? In Jesus' language, remember when Jesus tells us, I think it is in Matthew 16, that when you come to the altar to bring your gift, if there is a difference or an art between the two of you, lay your gift there, go back and rectify that difference and then come back and present it. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I don't want you to give knowing that there's a burden in your heart that you have unsettled. How many of us come into worship knowing that we wouldn't go into the kitchen because there's somebody in there we don't want to see, so we'd rather come in here and worship? I'm going to sit in my car until 11.43. Because all we got is one more song, then the pastor will be able to preach. I don't want to see anybody else. Preach, Murphy! I am. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, settle your disagreement. But wait a minute. I can hear some of us saying, that's them. I don't have that issue. That's why I try to stay out of people's business. I try to, when that stuff, kind of stuff come, I go in another direction because I don't want no drama in my life. I, I'm just cool where I am and I'm just going to serve God the way I am. If they have a difference, I'm going to pray for them. The next line, Paul says, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. I'm not going to let you off the hook either. There it is right there in the text. Look what he says. This is why I chose this, this translation because it makes it more clear. Verse 3, he says, I will tell you my true partner. Now, he is playing on words. What he really wants to say is, if you really are a loving brother and sister in the community, you got to go and help them. There it is right there in the text. Look at it. Help these two women because they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. You know what he's saying? Help them because their work meant something to this church. In fact, there are people who are here because of the hospitality that they gave. But here is a killer. Here is a killer. When people come and they joined Greater Little Zion. They said, oh, what an exciting experience until you join. Once you get in there and you see how people act. <sighs> now, you may say, don't tell us that pastor in the public forum. I don't see why not. We acting crazy in the public forum. Listen, thank you, baby. Listen, listen, listen to what the text says. The text said, I want you to help them. That means, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, we are a part of the ministry of reconciliation. So Matthew 16, I think it is, Jesus says, if you found an art, you go back and meet the brother. If you can't meet the brother, you go back and get somebody else and bring them back. If that don't work, you go back and get leaders official of the church and bring them back. If that don't work, you bring it before the church. Do you see what's happening there? There is this communal aspect that everyone's going to be involved in healing the difference in these two individuals. We take the corporate world's process of doing things and take them in the back room and let's just talk together. Let's just do this thing in private and figure it out. And Paul is saying, nope. I want all of you to do it together so that we can all see what happens when we become disharmonized, but most importantly how we get harmonized back together. Y'all might have quiet on but I'm alright. So look what he says. Help these two women for they worked and labored with me. And here I know they're Christians. Here's how I know they're Christians. Look at the last line. Their names are written in the book of life. That tells me that church folk act a fool just like unchurched people act foolish. That, that's why he says that that way. Their names are in the Lamb's book of life. So if you think that they're not saved, they're just as saved that you are. There's just something that's dividing us between the two. Now, I'm not going to point out something. I'm here to tell you. That's the stuff we got to address. Look to your right and look to your left. That pew will never be occupied if we continue to do what we're doing in terms of knowing there's a difference between us and not settling it. No one's going to come into that disharmony. 
And if we aren't careful, the few that we are taking in are going to leave because they don't want to see that kind of behavior. Why? Go back to my original point. Because the church is a place of hope. The church is a place of help. And the church is a place of healing. And if I can't get them, I got to find some place where I can. Says Jesus, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Look what he says. But I'm not going to let you off that easy because I'm still focusing not only reconciliation, verse 4, but joy. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. In other words, Paul says, listen, even though there's difference, sometimes you have to shout, you have to praise, you have to worship the anger and the difference out of the two of us so that we can find the medium ground to come together and reconcile. If not, the devil will get the glory by seeing us sad, depressed, and not being peaceful in the house of God. And I said in the last service, what good is it to come to church, the one place where you ought to be able to find peace and you can't find peace? What good is that? So listen to what he says. He says, rejoice, and again I say rejoice, let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. And here's the warning, why? Because remember the Lord is coming back again. So now Paul says, I'm going to dig, turn the knife deeper. You better keep in mind, God is coming back again, and he's going to come back looking for you. And if that's not deep enough, says Paul, let me push my point a little further. One of the reasons why you have disagreement, says Paul, is because you have not exercised dutiful prayer. See, look closely at verse 6. He says, translation Murphy, y'all need to stop worrying about stuff and start praying about everything. Isn't that what he says? Pray about everything. King James says with prayer and supplication. Make your request be made known unto God. Now, Paul raises the question to us, how often are you praying as a community? See, how often do we come together to pray about the empty pew? To pray about the differences in ministry among people. To pray about the lack of growth and consideration and love and care and compassion. Where, how do we, listen, I don't care how many, how many formulas you think you know, there are some things that are only divinely empowered. You can't out-program or out-design God. There's some things that take supernatural infusion for you to be able to do. We think that church, churches that are big and grown is just grown and big because somebody's a great preacher. No, somebody was praying. Somebody had been on their knees and asking God to give the increase. And if there is a difference, they found a way to deal with it so that the public at large does not have to sense the cancer that's in there. But praying that God would give the healing, they can move on, thus showing before the congregation how healing takes place. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Maybe our problem is we seek what we desire to do first and not the kingdom of God. Praying is the foundation of building. Read Acts chapter 2 and 3. Acts chapter 2 says, they continued in the apostles' doctrine Preaching of the word, teaching of the word, and prayer daily. And God added to the church. It takes three things to grow a church. I don't care what kind of, go to any church growth. If it's legitimate, if it's authentic, if it's biblical, it can have all the facade in the world. But all of its facade is going to lead back to three things. Prayer, the word, and the Holy Spirit. That's it. The word of God's got to be preached. The people of God has got to be praying. And the spirit of God's got to be active among the people. 
If you want to be in a church that's full to capacity and there's no word and there's no spirit and there is no praying, have at it. But I'm here to tell you it's going to be short-lived. You won't get any life out of that. You won't get any substantive out of that. In fact, I would contend you will get a lot of entertainment in less empowerment. Because that's what it's going to take to keep you there, to entertain you. Whereas when you come to a place where the word of God is being expound, the people of God are praying, and the spirit of God is being active, it means that the people of God are being empowered by God's word. And that's what draws people who are committed to doing it. Here it is right here. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's already done. And Paul says, I want you to do that because I'm going to go back to rejoicing. When you rejoice about the things that God has already done, you really don't have time to fuel and to culture disagreement. Someone said we got too much time on our hand. That's the reason why we stay in arguments all the time. That might be true. If I'm occupied about serving, I'm not interested in issues that keep us going further and further apart. Here it is. Because in rejoicing, it's going to reflect another element that can only happen if I'm rejoicing. Look at what he says in verse 7. Then you will experience God's peace which surpasses all understanding and it will guard your heart and your minds as you live in Christ. So Paul says you get peace when you're talking with God and when you're allowing the Spirit of God to lead your direction. As I said before, what is the purpose of being in a church where you can't find peace? That is the one place where peace should reign preeminently. After you have struggled all week long and wrestled with various degrees of human capabilities, when you come to church, I'm looking for some peace peace that surpasses my understanding. That means that when someone else asks me, how do you find peace in the midst of all of this? You say, I go to church. And they say, what's that church? You say, I can't explain it. But that's where the peace of God reigns. And it just blows my mind. But that's where I find my solace. So much so that we should be on Sunday morning. Here's how you know that you're walking in that realm. You are in that spirit that Paul is referring to. So much so that you can't wait to get to church because you know when I get there, all the burdens that I picked up in the week, I can lay them at the altar and God will handle them for me. In fact, I'm almost a little bit upset, disappointed that service ends. Even though the Redskins playing at one o'clock, I don't care. I record it, but I want to get my spirit right. Yeah, yeah. I was on my way to church this morning, and I, and I saw, uh, I can't remember what it was. It slipped my mind just that quick, but there was this uh, uh, activity taking place, and it was certainly something for kids. Oh, no, it was a car show, a car show right down there in uh, Lorton. And I said to myself, wow, they take Sunday morning to do a car show. What happened to Saturday morning? I, I understand everybody worked in the week. What about Saturday morning? But Saturday morning is relegated to my to-do list. That's when I got to get stuff done and I need to get done. Sunday morning is the next best option. The problem is, but do you have any time for the creator who gave you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and now Saturday and Sunday? Here's where the peace of God, here's what Paul says. When the peace of God comes in you, then you're living, you're living in the life of Christ. Then here's his final point, then I'm done. He says, by the way, verse 8, here's my final point to you, says Paul. Listen to me closely. I got to get your mind right. Part of your problem is your mind ain't right, says Paul. Look what he says. My dear brothers and sisters, my final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable. Right, pure, lovely, and admirable. 
Could Paul be saying, when you have a disagreement, rather than to see the negativity of the person, let's find a medium ground where we see the good or we remember the good of the person. Now you might say, oh, I have no idea what's good in that person. Then Paul says, find it. Why? Because you want to go further away from what is negative and creates dissension and closer to what is positive and creates wholeness. That's work. That's work because when our spirits disagree, our anger rises and we want to get that out as quick as possible. And so even if it means using words that deconstruct that human being, we'll do it. But look what Paul says. Put your thoughts on words that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. These things, think about those things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And if you really want to know the value of this sermon, it's Paul's final word in verse 9. This is where he puts himself out there big time. He says, I want you to be reflective of what creates a happy life. And by doing that, he says, verse 9, I want you to think. But most importantly, I want you to reproduce what you see me do. Now, that's, that's putting yourself, listen. Reproduce what you see me do. Now, how do I know that's the emphatic emphasis he's making? Read verse 9 closely. Listen to what he says. Keep on putting into practice all that you've learned and received from me. And if you've noticed, it's as if something interrupts his mind and says, do you mean everything you've done? And then he says, everything you've heard from me and saw me doing. Everything. He puts himself at the center of this issue, which Paul said, you see me do some good stuff and you see me do some bad stuff. You, re you uh, reproduce and replicate what I did was good, but you take what I did was bad and you learn from it and you use it differently as opposed to trying to hurt but to help. And when you put yourself at the center of difference to bring about reconciliation, Paul says, then you are a candidate for the Spirit of God to work miracles in somebody's life. And that's deep work. That's when Paul says, look, look at the last line of verse 9. That's when Paul says, oh, by the way, that's another example of how God will give you peace. See that? Then the God of peace will be with you. So Paul said, these are my final words about words, just to let you know that when you think about using your words, make sure you use them wisely because those words create difference. And whenever they create difference, as a Christian, you then have a responsibility of going back to reconcile what you broke apart. And that's a whole nother sermon about responsibility, taking ownership for what I did. Because, you know, that's a big thing for me to admit. Yep, I, I did that. I mean, we, we probably wouldn't be in the mess if I hadn't done it, but we're we, we here now. So let's just, let's just find a way to get it. Well, no, you, you got to be responsible. Have you noticed that God won't let us out of being responsible? First John 189, even when you get off the path with God, God says, uh-uh, you got to come back and confess. you got to get that thing right. But I am faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, but you're going to take responsibility for your own actions. All right, let me close with this line, then, I'm, then we're going to do benediction. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. Can I just read a few verses for you? Just nod your head and say amen as I read them because I think they're going to kind of hit you kind of hard. But just nod your head and just say amen and we're going to roll on. I'm not even going to give you an exposition. I'm just going to let you feel the reverberation through the Holy Spirit that comes out of the words. Romans 12 and 9, don't just pretend to love each other. Really love each other. Hate what is wrong. Hold tight to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. 
Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Here's a big one. Here's a big one. Here's a big one. Hold on to your seat. Buckle up. Here's a big one. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you are all that. Watch this, watch this. Never pay back evil with more evil. That's for those of us who are scheming and conniving and think you're going to get away with it. Trust me, it's going to be revealed at some point in time. You got to be careful when you're sneaky like that. Watch your sneakiness. Hey, I, I, have, just, I have this much faith in God's discerning revelation. You can never talk about it in church, but you can talk about it on the phone and you can talk about it in the email or text message. If you're trying to be sneaky and conniving, God will reveal it. That, that's just my belief. So I'm just here to warn you. You talk about me, I'm going to find out one way or the other. I, 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 I really believe that. Somehow, some way, God will let me know what you're talking about and what you're doing. I'm just serving a warning to you. Be sneaky if you want. It don't matter. I'm going to get you. I'm going to catch up with you. Somehow, some way, God's going to show me. I just believe that. That's why this verse is so important. Look what he says. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everybody. That's it. I'm done. That's it. Like I said, I won't commentate. Just let that word just... Because you think about that passage, that's enough to shake you up. See, because it's confronting. It's, it's right. Now, it may go in one ear and out the other to some people. I pray that it doesn't. Because Paul is saying, one way or the other, your words is what's going to get you in trouble. Or your words can bring about salvation and victory if you use them correctly. So what am I aspiring for you to do? Watch what you say. And watch who you say it to. Because you know the old saying, a dog that'll bring a bone will carry a bone. So the same folk you are communicating with, they are going to tell somebody else. And that's my friend. Lord, may the word of our mouths.